2: everyone and welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast. My name is Jamila and I'm a data privacy analyst at KZ Privacy Experts. I'm primarily responsible for conducting research on current and upcoming legislation as well as any key developments and decisions by supervisory authorities. With me today as my co-host is Jamal Ahmed, Fellow of Information Privacy and CEO at KZ Privacy Experts. Jamal is an astute and influential privacy consultant, strategist, board advisor, and fellow of information privacy. He is a charismatic leader, progressive thinker, and innovator in the privacy sector who directs complex global privacy programs. Considered by his peers and clients to be one of the UK's preeminent privacy experts, he has the credibility and gravitas to engender confidence. He is a sought-after commentator, contributing to the BBC, ITV News, Euronews, Talk Radio, The Independent, and The Guardian, amongst others. His Privacy Pros podcast reaches audience in 72 countries and is ranked the number one privacy podcast in the world and one of the top three GDPR podcasts. Jamal strives to be a great leader, listener, and coach. He has grown a talented, high-performing team who protect the privacy of a billion-plus data subjects and are international experts in data privacy, GDPR, and cybersecurity. Jamal and his team are driven by the principles of simplifying and demystifying privacy, removing complexities and educating clients to forge a privacy-by-design culture that enables clients to build their internal privacy capability and capacity. He works with global clients across multiple sectors and jurisdictions, partnering with boards and C-suite teams. He debates constructively, challenges rigorously, questions intelligently and, and advises pragmatically. Alongside exceptional experience and qualifications, he has value by providing pertinent insights, bringing alternative perspectives and triggering healthy debate.
0: Hi, Joel. Hi, Jamila. Thank you for such a great introduction. You make me feel about two inches taller. (laughs) No problem.
2: I'm excited for our guest today. Uh, So with us today, we've got Dan Freckling, who has over 20 years executive leadership of technology organizations and unique experience helping customers achieve compliance and growth simultaneously. Dan has significant industry grounding in digital advertising, marketing, privacy, and payments serving clients from SMBs to large enterprises. As the CEO of Baltiv, he leads a team dedicated to helping customers avoid regulation and reputational risk so they achieve brand-safe, privacy-first growth. Baltiv is known for highly satisfied customers that use their software to find a block and replace invasive advertising. And invasive advertising includes those with malware, data leakage, and other violations. Welcome, Dan. Thank you for coming. I was going to say thank you for having us, but thank you for coming. our <laughs> podcast. Yeah.
3: Thank you for having me, Jamila, and Jamal, you as well. Thanks so much. Good to be here.
2: As we always do, we start off uh, with an icebreaker question. So what fictional world or place would you like to visit?
3: I would love to, to visit the world of Blade Runner. It was As a kid, that was the first sci-fi movie that I really got into. You, you can debate how good the remake was, but that whole environment and how much influence it has had on uh, movies since then is phenomenal. So I think I think the whole milieu of Blade Runner, uh, of Los Angeles and the early 21st century, at least as fictionally uh, imagined in the 1970s and 80s, uh, would be where I'd like to visit.
0: Nice, Jamal? I'm gonna say probably it's between Narnia and uh, the Willy Wonka Chocolate Factory. I'm not sure which one. <laughs> That's a good shout, the Chocolate Factory.
2: What about I'm you? 100% Hogwarts. <laughs> Definitely Hogwarts. I just, I'd love to learn magic. And as a child, I was a big nerd who loved school that much. I really wanted to go to boarding school. So huh. there we are. <laughs> All right. Right. Let's get into our uh, privacy questions. So Dan, what started your interest in privacy?
3: So my my interest in privacy really began when I was running a, a related company. I, I ran a business called G Two which made the internet safer for e-commerce. And at that time, we were in the business of finding bad actors of various types that were selling prohibited goods, whether it was illegal drugs, whether it was scams, extremist hate content, all those kinds of things for uh, for banks all over the world. And while I was there, I I was the victim of creepy ads. (laughs) It was a a tough period because I was seeking out cancer treatments for a loved one. And I began to see my browse history, shared with online ad vendors, and that would be followed by cartoonish cancer-related ads, very personal, all over the web. When I'd look at sports, when I'd look at news, when I'd look at entertainment, and, and so that's where I started to learn about data leakage and now what what today is called more commonly surveillance advertising. Um, but when I was at the when I was at G two, it was a line of business we weren't engaged in. So that's where I the point at which I joined Boltiv which does a similar thing. It's finding bad actors. We find bad actors in advertising online and I get to do something about it. And uh, for that standpoint, it allows me to continue what I believe is a mission in life, which is to help make the internet safer and stopping bad actors in the advertising world in, in short stopping invasive ads.
2: That sounds really quite distressing. The situation you were in where you were looking at cancer treatment and then, you know, you're being reminded of it every time you go from website to website, have you had a lot of your uh, users at Boltiv? Have they have do they have similar stories? Is that something that you've seen as quite common?
3: I have come across those uh, with similar stories, and and many times it is in healthcare. Uh, uh, ironically, it, it, it tends to be health conditions that draw. the the most ire from people when they see that kind of information shared, um, followed closely by financial information. When we look at the nature of advertising and the the amount of data that's shared, there are a number of sensitive categories that are commonly coded in the taxonomy uh, of internet advertising. And so sexual orientation is one of the, ethnicity uh, is another one. Religious beliefs, political beliefs, right? These are all commonly included in in one's browse history and are categorized. So um, I do come across people with their own stories of being chased around the web with information that they didn't believe was being created about them and and made uh, really into a dossier, a profile that governs what kinds of ads they'll see.
0: That's really interesting. Two reasons. Number one is because in Europe, we see privacy as a basic human right. And the GDPR actually expressly stops organizations from collecting special category data, which is basically the sensitive data that you describe people's healthcare, sexual orientation, political opinions, et cetera, et cetera. And when companies are actually collecting this stuff and then selling it to the highest bidder, it sets all sorts of alarms ringing for all the privacy pros listening, but also from just a basic human right point of view, it's very uh, violating, isn't it? And what I really love is how you were a victim of them following you based on the search you had, but how you've actually found strength in that. And instead of kind of like saying, oh, I don't care or what can I do anyway, you've actually decided you're going to combat that and conquer that. And it ties really nicely with the vision that we have uh, uh, in our organization, where we want to give every single man, woman and child the right to really safeguard their privacy from this kind of surveillance monitoring.
3: What I love is when I come in contact with other privacy people that, There is a, an intrinsic drive to what they do that they do believe. And and I think we are categorically making the world safer for consumers because the pendulum has swung so far the other direction prior to this point around targeting it, particularly in the US and your reference in Europe. Europe has a much better understanding uh, among the regulators of real time bidding of. Uh, and, and the you know the activity by Belgium not too long ago that's still being worked out with the IAB is an indication of that. The the ICO in the UK is an indication of that. But an, an understanding of, of the abuses that can happen when these auctions are predicated on who has the most information about a user, so that they can win the bid because they can have more premium advertisers bidding on that private information. So that we're a little bit of the counterweight to that. Uh, in the privacy world, you know, kind of back to, to the original question, when I come across others and we share our stories, it comes back to what can I do about it? And we're in the kind of field where you can get up every day and feel like you're making the world, the Internet safer for everyone.
2: And do you think there are attitudes now shifting um, for companies and CEOs into seeing privacy as more and more important?
3: Yeah, I, I definitely do see that. And I'll speak more from the U.S. perspective uh, because mm-hmm. that's you where know, where more of our businesses, although we have clients in Europe also, there is an understanding of the data sharing being violative, and that comes from advertisements. It it also comes from tags. So we we talk we talk a lot about the online advertising, the programmatic world, and. Uh, and data sharing from from that perspective, but there's also in in tags that sit on web pages um, a similar problem. And it's it's kind of the nature of the open web that advertising funds all the free content that we see on the web, and that's how I think advertising's gotten its place. But tags also enable commerce on the web. However, when we see the kind of data sharing and and the abuses of late, and the sensitive data, and the initial actions in uh, across the world, I think Gartner has a statistic that. In 2020, about 20% of the world's population was governed by consent-based privacy laws. And the projection next year is that 75% of the world's population will be governed by consent-based privacy laws, that it is happening all at once. It is something we're all aware of. And in the case of the U.S., what has also raised the higher uh, attention to it is that it's sometimes become a national security issue. And in April 2021, there was a bipartisan group of senators that uh, sent a letter to Google and other ad tech companies that really exposed that data shared in digital ad uh, buying could be a goldmine for foreign intelligence services. And this was after Cambridge Analytica and and various assertions and and Equifax and and various assertions towards Russia and China in terms of their involvement in that. But the senators were saying that this kind of information could allow stronger influence campaigns and even blackmail. Well, a year plus later, this June, Google was caught sharing data with a sanctioned Russian ad tech company called Rootarget, also known as Segmento, that was a unit of Sverbank. And that uh, you know, had gone on for four months after the start of the Ukraine war. And, and then TikTok has come under its own microscope. It's just settled a $92 million case in the U.S. And under some cross-examination, uh, executives at uh, TikTok admitted to U.S. senders that, that Chinese employees can access U.S. user data, which which had been a debate going back and forth since the middle of the Trump administration, when there was that, that some of the actions that Trump took. So when you when you look at what in the U.S. Uh, we might view as sometimes unfriendly countries, uh, that China's National Intelligence Law, which which compels individuals to support intelligence gathering, it does raise the level of attention for CEOs to what's really going on. And with 2023 being such an important year around the world, but particularly in the U.S. with five uh, U.S. state privacy laws taking effect. It really is a top five concern for CEOs, for sure, managing privacy.
0: On, on that note, that uh, why do you think individuals, consumers, the general public, why are they uh, becoming more and more concerned with privacy? Because it's it's really interesting. A few years ago, we, you would mention privacy and people wouldn't really care too much, um, e- even when we had all of the Edmund Snowden stuff going on. But now we see companies like Apple talking about how uh, they're selling their phones and they're selling millions of phones based on the fact that it's meant to help you to protect your privacy over any other features of the phone. Why do you think that privacy is so important to individuals right now?
3: I think you you start with a good reference there, Jamal. It's the, the cumulative effect of this drumbeat of news that has been happening really over the past 10 years. And I, I believe like the, the first time I became aware of it was the news of the world and other incidents with UK newspapers where there was phone hacking, right? And that was back in 2011. And then as you mentioned, Edward Snowden, blew everything up in 2013 and exposing what the NSA was doing under its surveillance programs. But you have also other places in the world. Japan had a massive data breach the next year in 2014, where a third of their population was exposed and increased in cyber attacks. And then, uh, back to the U.S. where it was really sharpened as a national issue was, was in 2017, the, the Equifax hack, which was later attributed to the Chinese military. And then of course, Cambridge Analytica came in around that as well. So it's, I think it's been a drumbeat of news where one incident after another has made it important. And again, Forgive the U.S. centric perspective here, but it, this is really fresh. In June, right? Just, just a couple months ago, we saw the Supreme Court overturn Roe versus Wade with the Hobbes decision, uh, which overturned 50 years of precedent. It was initially framed as an abortion issue, right to life versus abortion. But the interpretation and the legal kind of treatise on this really made it a privacy issue, particularly around women's health. So that, that really, I, in terms of galvanizing public opinion, that incident this year has, had made, has made the issue of privacy and the trade-offs particularly sharp because this, this information can put people in jail. The sharing of private information that, that individuals think is safe can actually get you in serious trouble. So that, I think it's one thing after another that's really built up to make this year make it such a prominent issue.
2: Um, the states, they're less encouraged to make privacy laws. Do you think the attitudes are shifting there as well?
3: That's a very, very good question. And you could argue that from two different places. One is, what is the nature of the governance of those states? So we have mm-hmm. so-called red states and blue states, where blue states yeah. are more liberal and red, straight, red states are more conservative. And the blue states are, are generally viewed as having more progressive privacy regulation, California, mm-hmm. um, Connecticut, for sure. Um, Colorado kind of fits in there. Um, as well. My my state, Washington state, which has been trying to pass a privacy law for a couple years now and has been unsuccessful, would be considered um, progressive in that regard. We had an incident this week with Kansas, where Kansas is considered more of a red state, more conservative. Mm -hmm. The the will of the people was towards protecting abortion, protecting the right to abortion. So I think we might even see a bit of a divergence between what the citizenry espoused, the majority of the citizenry versus political positions taken by the, the national parties and that is very very interesting as the US is about to engage in midterms in congress to see who controls the national legislation
2: yeah. it's definitely interesting and i don't know loads about american politics but one would assume that the red states would be more inclined to privacy because then it would protect things like gun laws it would protect you know, the individual's rights. But seeing that in reality, it doesn't work. It's just very interesting with what you said about Kansas as well, seeing that they voted to keep a, uh, access to abortion. What's
3: very interesting is the, the ADPPA, which uh, is on a little bit of a hiatus right now, because the, this the legislature is in recess, that was a is, is a bipartisan, conservative and liberal Republican and Democrat supported law. And it does bring together the opposite ends of the political spectrum. Back to this point before, because everybody has their story of having been exposed, having their data exposed in one way or another. And so that is one of those issues. Um, there's maybe uh, only a few issues that bring together the whole political spectrum. And privacy right now is that issue, amazing.
0: So, Elio, Dan, you mentioned about Boltiv and how that's helping companies to help that mission that you have, that you identified. Can you tell us a little bit more how it actually works?
3: So uh, Boltiv is in the business of uh, sort of brand-safe privacy-led growth. And what we found is... With 2023 approaching and we have five states enacting privacy laws, a total of 29 U.S. states have introduced bills in their in their legislatures. It's becoming a very patchwork driven uh, environment. But there is a, a commonality around consent. And we wanted to, to assess the, the nature of the market and how ready companies are, because there was a survey of, of 200 U.S. C-level uh, executives by uh, Womble Bond Law Firm found that six out of 10 said they were were very prepared for the the privacy laws they're about to hit next year. Well, we did our own survey of the US Fortune 100, and we found that only 33% were compliant with the opt-out expectations just in the California laws, because we we took a look at that first. And um, this is not unlike GDPR in 2018, where people weren't 100% ready uh, when it came out. But what was remarkable was that that there's specific rules around what needs to be done in terms of the number of ways to opt out and the method, particular methods that California deems are compliant. And only 33 of the Fortune 100 are, are consistent with that expectation. But that's actually just half the story. So that, that is a story of, about readiness at the corporate level. But from a more important standpoint, we found that technology – isn't ready for the data privacy regulations either. And that's what's, what's led Boltiv to build our technology out. Right. Boltiv began in the world of ad quality, finding malware, finding objectionable ads. We, we protect about a trillion um, ad impressions per year, but we kept coming into this issue of, of privacy and leakage being core. And what we found is that the primary technologies for consent management are not actually fit for purpose with what the laws are asking for. First is that web forms, right? A commonly used method is, is opt out web forms that are on um, on websites. Those fail about 50 to 75% of the time because they don't integrate with the browser. They can, they can be effective for things like data subject access requests, right? Uh, but they can't be as effective with interaction with the browser for, because of technical in, uh, limitations. Consent management platforms, which are used by over 40% of the Fortune 100, they create errors around 37% of the time. And it's because there are so many handshakes, so many technical handshakes that need to work accurately for the consent signal to be passed on. So when we calculated the impact on, on individual consumers, the average US consumer faces up to 100 consent failures per day. If you look at how many bid requests are coming through, how many consent management platforms they come in contact with, and how often that signal gets corrupted. There's over a 100 failures per day in that opt-out not making it through down the chain, which is pretty significant, right? That puts it in the world of like the elevator closed door buttons where, you know, it doesn't work most of the time when you hit the closed door button because it's there as a placebo, right? Or the office thermometers that don't work most of the time because climate is centrally controlled. That consent management platforms have become these things that we believe are working and consumers take action to opt out, but the signal 37% of the time doesn't make its way through the chain. And that has led to the discovery of what we deem dark signals and data skimmers online that harvest that data because it's being shared when consumers believe it's not.
0: If I, if I was to go and talk about Boltev to some of my clients, uh, what is the kind of business that would sign up to something like this and how does it benefit them?
3: So the kinds of businesses that sign up for us are engaged in in either online advertising or online commerce and many times both. And so they want to make sure that they're respecting their users, that not only are they following the laws and the regulations, but also that they're, they're enabling and, and, and maintaining that trust that their users have in them because that is a pretty high bar. And back to what I said just a moment ago, I introduced this concept of dark signals. And and dark signals are the phenomenon that that we have seen. Uh, You may have heard of dark patterns, and and dark patterns are where there is manipulation going on with the user interface. Well, that's very visible. Dark signals are actually invisible, and that is where these methods that I just talked about that fail between 37 and 100% of the time, that that consent choice opt-in or opt-out gets lost, it gets corrupted, it gets mistransmitted. So our software discovers where that's happening and enables that to be corrected. So that when consumers opt out, they're not getting served ads. And on the other side, when they opt in, that's a chance for brands to know who their loyal interested prospects are. And because that gets lost at the same rate as the opt-ins, that's really a top line problem for businesses as well. It it, the software works almost like a, a smoke test of the online add web plumbing if you will these the pipes where all the consent flows to make sure that uh that signals don't go dark that they actually pass through to where they're where they're intended that takes us to the the online skimmers which is the other concept i mentioned a moment moment ago is that when you have consumer data flowing non compliantly then you have a high incentive for people for, for nefarious actors to go in and intercept that right and it's a bit like card skimmers at automated uh, teller machines or gas stations where the the scammers will put a plastic device that's, that fits over where the credit card goes in, and they'll intercept that credit card data. We see the same thing going on on the internet. And so we have methods to protect against unauthorized data collection, because that is where you get the issue of the Russian sanctioned entity receiving the information from Google or another client we worked with where there was a there was a malware distributor in the Philippines that was getting access to consumer data. And that was not a good thing to sort of identify where these online skimmers are and, and uh, restrict their access to the consumer data.
0: That's super interesting. You frightened me a little bit there as well. I, I was not aware of these uh, online skimming activity taking place. And how
3: prevalent is it? It's very prevalent. And it's. It's been known for decades, as soon as programmatic advertising, which powers most digital advertising on the web and programmatic advertising are those real time auctions in five to 20 milliseconds uh, bids are are received and an advertiser is awarded access to a user is created pre- uh, a very prevalent activity because it is so lucrative that and, and there are virtually no barriers to signing up and to get a seat at, a, at an ad exchange, to see the data going back and forth. Even if you're not going to bid on the ad slot, you can see the consumer data going back and forth, which enables things like cookie sinks. And the cookie sinks allow you to build larger and larger dossiers, larger and larger profiles on people. And again, you don't have to pay for it because you're, you don't have to necessarily bid at that, at that moment. So it's very lucrative to have access to personal information and create a data asset out of that that can be deployed later, because when you see that user next time, you know a little bit more about them because of of the cookie sinks. So and that's just on from a commercial standpoint, from a national security standpoint, and back to why Congress in the US was so concerned, knowing someone's preferences, knowing what their political beliefs are, knowing who, who and where they visit makes it uh, very tempting if you're an intelligence organ of, an, of another government to use that information with influence campaigns. And In fact, that that's ongoing. So it is more prevalent, but it's because the incentives are there from a commercial standpoint and even from a, um, a global standpoint to have that
0: user data. Thank you for sharing that. Super interesting.
2: It's all quite scary thinking about how at risk we are when we go online. What can an individual do though to protect themselves or Is it too late? As someone who's been on the internet, you know, since I was about 11 years old and used to put my email address on forums when forums were a thing, am I still able to have privacy
3: online? You certainly are. It does come with it um, choice and deciding to spend a little more effort in protecting yourself. Because yes, there's a lot of fun that comes from sharing on social media. There's a lot of fun that comes from putting our contact information on, on fora so that we can better interact with people. But as we know, there's a dark side to that. Uh, The the first place I'd say consumers can look to is on mobile devices. So choosing uh, Apple uh, operating system, iOS, where you can turn off app tracking, whether you're on Apple or Android, deleting unused apps. Um, Apple has made it a little easier at this point to um, manage your privacy. So that's one choice you can make. Your choice of browser. Choosing a privacy-safe browser like Brave or Ghost Dawn or firefox right that instead of chrome now chrome has 60 to 70 percent global market share because it's so easy and when you set up an account uh with google it makes everything else accessible and it, it, it's a convenience but this is where you got to make some choices about choosing privacy over convenience duck, duck go is is another example and i think you had kelly Finerty uh, on this on this podcast really recently at, from start page And uh, Startpage also has a privacy-safe search engine similar to DuckDuckGo, but choosing your search engines in a way that where their practices are more privacy-compliant. Email, choosing anonymized email, like Ten Minute Mail. And by the way, these companies that I've mentioned, I have no affiliation with them at all. Just (laughs) I want to make it a little easier for people to know where to go rather than just being abstract. For those that want to go a little bit further, masking your IP address with VPNs, Tor is is an example of that. And then the other one I think which Is maybe been hardest for me is when those software updates come in accept and upgrade your software i used to resist those because i didn't want the latest software that was going to break because the bugs hadn't been ironed out yet but the trade-offs are there it's better to upgrade your software because that's where the patches will come through and then you beyond that if you want to go really in the advanced category some people go and remove their information from those people search websites which you can do with requests and technically speaking you can also put block you can block scripts from running on your browser but for the for the average person i think looking at your mobile device your browser your choice of search engines your choice of email and then being aware of what you share on social media that will go a long way
2: it's interesting how easy it is to find someone online and find out their information you know when one of my friends gets a new partner i'm the designated let's see what we can find online about them
0: <laughs> don't make
2: it so easy for me. That is the message I'm giving out
0: to <laughs> or don't date Jimmy's friends. <laughs> <laughs> all that. <hell. laughs>
2: My friends are very nice. Thank you very much. Jamal. <laughs>
3: um,
2: so Dan, what do you look for when you are hiring in privacy?
3: What I look for in hiring privacy people is what I look for, for every individual that I, I'd like to have join my team. And, mm-hmm. but for privacy specifically, I mean, there's some general principles. I, I have this framework I call the six cities, which is you know, for the individual, I, I like to see curiosity, tenacity, and authenticity. And with how they go about their business, customer centricity, simplicity, and velocity. And it, it's a bit trite, but it, it works for me in, in, in diagnosing who I think would be a good fit. But particularly for privacy professionals, people that are lifelong learners that will continue to watch and and, and pick up what's going on in privacy, they're so much activity going on every week. I haven't been in an industry with so much news, so much regulation, so so much um, activities from businesses and consumers. Mm-hmm. But being a lifelong learner carries with it a little bit more obligation. And what I also like to see is people that are not just lifelong learners, but lifelong teachers. Because when you're at the helm and you're, 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 you're at the, the, the front of uh, the interface and seeing what's going on in privacy, Picking out what the rest of the organization needs to know makes you very valuable, I think, to that organization. So that's number one, being a lifelong learner, but also a lifelong teacher. Second is is spending some time to understand the other side. So personally, in my career, I actually started out in marketing. So I was the big offender, right, with hyper-targeting and and privacy-invasive activity because I didn't understand the implications of it until I had my own incident, right, my own creepy ads hitting me. Other people come from different perspectives. You come from a legal background, for example. You may not have spent time in marketing. Understanding why marketers engage in this level of targeting, that they're just people and they have objectives and KPIs and projects that they have to get done. They're not bad people. They're just doing what their incentive structure is. But but understanding where that comes from, understanding how the marketing technology works, I think makes privacy people very valuable to organizations. And I think third is the, the, the certifications and programs like Privacy Pros has like what you guys have and, you know, Jamal, in Jamal and your program, I think is incredibly valuable because it teaches not just elements of privacy, but getting out of your comfort zone and and pushing yourself and going beyond where you what you thought possible, because that isn't that's valuable in, in any walk of life. But in programs such as yours, you have the opportunity to uh, to connect with others or Using LinkedIn or other social networks where you can find other, other, pri- other privacy professionals. So whether they're alumni from your program or whether there are uh, individuals that you meet through other, um, other connection points. Like the third is that, that what makes someone really valuable. What I like to see is that they have a network and they're actively building their network. Um, among privacy professionals, because that helps in innumerable ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think having the right kind of community, people with the right mindset is super important, especially when you have so much going on in so many different jurisdictions and being able to ask or just bounce ideas off privacy pros who are working in jurisdictions, in different industries, who are familiar a little bit more with something that you haven't touched for a long time, with maybe the first time you're touching, is so valuable. And that's why I believe that employers need more people who are connected because it helps them to do their job better it helps them to be aware of what's going on and it helps them see things from a different perspective sometimes yeah. so sometimes we'll see conversations in our community of people from one industry asking about their approach to something and then somebody will come up with a completely different approach that they would oh. never have thought of in a million years because it's just such a different way of thinking about it and it really enriches those individuals to be able to empower those businesses to adopt the audience privacy practices in a much greater way. Isn't that an
3: interesting point about privacy is that, uh, uh, and I'm going to go back to the regulations that so many industries that are regulated are industry specific. And in the US, there's the FAA for airlines and the FDA for drugs and food. Then there's specific uh, regulatory agencies for nuclear power and electricity and other things. But in privacy, it's really cross industry. You can be in so many different verticals yet still face some of the same fundamental privacy issues and principles, it makes us uh, have a lot more common and really a much larger community as a result.
0: Absolutely. So Dan, one of the things that you like speaking about is the cookie future and how that impacts on privacy. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? When we talk about
3: what's happening in 2023 and even 2024, it's very largely momentum from consumers and regulators but there's also private sector and google i think they announced in 2020 that they were going to first eliminate the third-party cookie and google chrome eliminating third-party cookie was essentially the death knell of that that device it has already been eliminated and blocked by browsers such as firefox as i said earlier but the cookieless future is that we're going to need to just get by and we're going to need to to target and go about finding prospects as businesses without relying on that cookie. And Prohaska Consulting in the US is estimated that there's over a hundred different solutions that are vying to replace the cookie. So on the one hand, it's great. We're not gonna have this really invasive thing, this piece of technology, this code on our browsers called a third party cookie. But on the other hand, what's gonna replace the cookie? Because the motivation to target is still gonna be there. That's not going yes. anywhere, right? And the potential abuses are still going to be there. So in in the interim, right, when we're in this period of restructuring where there isn't really a single replacement for the cookie and there's a hundred different solutions, some of them are identity-based, which are just kind of like a cookie, (laughs) right? If you might have a little bit more login permissions around that or contextual, they have to sort themselves out. And as... Privacy people, we need to look at those and support our colleagues in in marketing and sales that are adopting these to make sure that we're not repeating the mistakes of the past just with a different piece of technology. So the cookie future sounds very bright, but what's going to replace the cookie, I think, we will find this interim period of virtual chaos, right, as we sort out what are the good players and what are the not-so-good players. So it does actually take us to a period of greater scrutiny, I think. In the short term before it sorts itself out.
0: Thank you for explaining that. And in the UK, we've had some proposals for reforms which are now in front of the government. And what they're talking about is getting rid of cookie consent banners because they apparently are very annoying and nobody wants to see them. What do you think that means for the future of the UK and uh, the British public and what that means for their online privacy?
3: It's going to be an interesting experiment. The UK, I think, is standing out as a place where commerce is maybe a little bit more pragmatic from the EU, certainly different than Germany and France's approach. And there's some benefits. It will, it remains to be seen, right? Does that lead to an environment that fosters more innovation and draws more companies in and create more startup formation because there's fewer restrictions? Because let's talk like, let's be honest. These privacy rules disproportionately hit small and medium sized businesses and disproportionately impact startups. It makes it harder to get in. So it'll be an interesting experiment to see if while maintaining at least a floor of protection, the UK is able to generate more innovation, right? And more businesses and draw in more investment, right? For that reason. I'm, and I'm sure these are all the things that are going to be measured. But the counter argument to that and the contrarian approach will be well, UK uh, may lose its adequacy. Uh, definition and, and may have to go under a, a, a lot more review by the EU. And I I, I don't know. I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't understand the, the GDPR implications well enough to, to answer that. So there's a little bit of a, of, a, of a contrarian point. But I think it's going to be very interesting. The UK is in a neat spot where it can make its own decisions on this. And let's see where it turns up.
0: Very interesting insight. And I'm definitely having lots of different conversations with people from different parts of the world about what this actually means. No one is making any sure predictions. And a lot of people are saying, look, he still has to go through the first reading and the second reading and there's a whole process. And by the time it actually ends up as an approved bill, it could look a lot different to what it started off with. And it could actually... And end up not being, uh, a lot of those reforms could end up not being implemented at all.
3: Yeah, that's the political system, isn't it? We're summed up right there. It's,
0: it's given us a lot of things to talk about, but the problem is what changes can businesses start thinking about and making? And I don't think they can actually start thinking about any of those changes until we actually know for sure what the extent is. And a lot of our colleagues in Europe are saying, well, actually, Whatever the changes are, it's just going to make it easier for businesses because the whole reform is meant to make it more pragmatic. So I don't think there's anything to be concerned about for businesses thinking about what do the reforms mean for me? If you're compliant with the GDPR, it's most likely going to be that you are already compliant when these reforms come in. So I don't think there's too much there for uh, UK businesses to start worrying about.
3: Will the UK reforms change policies because you you raised something which is very important that If you're based in the UK, you're most likely gonna be doing business in continental Europe. So does it change, does it does it lead you to treat UK residents differently and then have a different set of rules around continental Europe, or do you just take the GDPR approach and and make that your global standard?
0: It's, it's an interesting question. So on, on the consultancy side of our business, we work with the four thinking companies. And for them, it's not about the risk appetite and being compliant. It's about going beyond compliance to inspire trust, cultivate confidence, and ultimately secure more business that way. So they will always be looking to how would our customers expect us to treat them? Would they want us to treat them at the same level that we're treating the people that we're serving in Europe? Absolutely. So what's the right thing to do here? And how can we make sure that we earn the trust of the people who trust us with their information? And they would take that approach. And that basically means they're probably going to still be compliant with GDPR and Mm -hmm. give that kind of framework out to the rest of the company and all their stakeholders. Yeah, very, very astute.
2: Just to go back, because the question has now just popped in my head, we're talking about what you look for in hiring. Um, You mentioned your six cities. Jamal, you've got your five C's. How does that compare with Dan's cities? Because I think a lot of that overlaps a lot of what you look for when you're training people in the Privacy Pros Academy.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's a little bit different. Isn't it? The five C's isn't what we necessarily look for when we're hiring us. So the five C's we have in the Privacy Pros Academy, or our award-winning C5 formula, is actually to help privacy pros get from where they are to where they want to be to really unful- uh, fulfill their potential and to see some growth. And those five Cs, number one, it's all about having clarity. We hear about self-imposter syndrome and people not feeling confident and people not really showing up or speaking up when they're supposed to. And a lot of the time, a reason is because they don't actually have the clarity. So the first thing we look to give uh, our mentees is to make sure they have the clarity in the understanding, the clarity in how this actually applies and how they can implement whatever they're looking to implement. The clarity in the latest updates to regulations or the latest uh, guidelines being released by the European Data Protection Board. So it's all about getting the clarity. And what we found is when people have clarity, it leads to the second C, which is confidence. So once you have the clarity, you know exactly what you need to do, you know exactly what's required, you have confidence. And when you have confidence and clarity, it gives you that credibility. And when you have confidence, uh, clarity, and credibility, You are somebody who's competent and your customers, your clients, your employers, everyone in the industry, your peers, everyone can see that you're competent because you're credible You have the confidence in your clarity. And the final thing uh, we spoke about earlier is the final C is the community. There's no point in you just being a lone wolf. You need to have a community to support you, a community to grow with you, like-minded people who are on a similar journey, and everyone in the community is striving to be the best they can. So together, we can really fulfill the vision of making sure that every woman, man, and child has the freedom to choose what happens with their personal information. And they do that by getting their clients, by getting their employers to adopt those honest privacy practices. So they're really going out to serve the individuals and the businesses to make the right decisions.
3: I I like that, how they build upon each other, that the clarity and the confidence gives you credibility, because that's really true. This point that you you capture, which is even if it's not something you have 100 percent familiarity with right? You're, you're, this idea of stepping out of your comfort zone, the, the growth mindset that you talk about. There, there's a bit of that as well, that going into the unknown is not scary, that going into the unknown is exactly where you belong because privacy is an unknown world, right? It is uncharted territory that we're stepping into right now. So I don't know if one of the C's covers that, but I do think that was remarkable as I as I hear about what your training does, that it just creates giving people the, the, the sort of push they need or to, to push themselves to take, you know, to, to take a little bit of risk and a little bit of chances, not uncalculated risk, but not being afraid to step into that unknown.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that we, so we have a signature 12-week Privacy Pros Accelerator program, which is for the more ambitious, high-performance uh, professionals in our community. And we have five pillars on that. And one of the pillars that we talk about is that mindset, having that growth mindset, getting rid of all of those and, and you know, self limiting beliefs and things that are be holding you back and focusing on what's possible, and we really focus on the filters and people defining and visualizing their best self and then manifesting that and going out and achieving it. And that's why you see people coming through the program with no experience in data privacy. Uh, we had a gentleman who was, came across here. He was in catering for 10 years and then he became an Uber driver. And now he's serving a multinational company as a data protection manager. And they're really valuing the work he's doing. And they, all of his clients that they work with are also really happy as well. So it just shows you that if you believe you can do something and you put your mind to it absolutely there is no limiting yourself and the only time you actually learn and you grow is when you get out of your comfort zone and you get a little bit uncomfortable because that's when things start shifting things start changing and one of the things that my mentor taught me that i pass on to others is your best level of thinking has got you to where you are now Your best level of thinking has created the problems that you have now. So to solve those and to overcome them, you have to get out of your thinking and you need to find a mentor, someone who can guide you to really take you and elevate you to the next level of progression. And that includes getting uncomfortable enough to admit yes, there are certain challenges and there are things that I want to grow in. So please guide me and help me. And that's ultimately what we try to do at the Privacy Pros Academy is to get those individuals who are ready for growth, who are ready for challenge, bring them in and guide them to really start hitting some of the goals that they've set themselves and to start living the life that they know that they truly deserve.
3: That is a really good way to, to crystallize it is that the the, the approaches and your way of thinking that have gotten you this far have also caused your limitations, right? And and it, it's hard to shake yourself out of those patterns, right? It's hard to it, – you really fall back into what what feels comfortable and what you've done before. And, and uh, gosh, especially in a distributed world post-pandemic where there's less interactions – that never been more true, what you said, than today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But you know what the great thing is, and I'm going to go off a little bit on a tangent here, is our brain is plastic. So we, we, we hear this concept of neuroplasticity, which means that even though you've been in the same thing for 20-odd years, you can still change it. You can make new connections. And that's where the, the book by is it James Clear, who talks about atomic habits atomic and how habits. you can really… Yeah. Atomic habits, how you can really garner every single goal that you want to achieve by creating the environment that's correct, by creating these atomic habits. So whatever you've been doing doesn't mean that you have to do that and live your life that way. You can actually believe and know for a fact science proves it, that your brain is neuroplastic, which means anytime you can pick up new habits, that's going to really help you to take you to the next stage of your growth. Your And, and that could be whether it's in your career or in your life. And what normally people find is you spend so much of your day doing your work so if you really show up and do a great job and you feel confident in your work that translates to other areas of your life you actually radiantly give permission for people in your family your children your relatives your partner to really be the best they can do and you become inspirational and one of the things that i love is when i get phone calls or text messages from the partners the mothers the children of the people who've been through the academy saying who is this person that you've created them? We love them so much. Oh, I'm inspired by them, and now I'm going to take some vocational training in my area of life, and they're such a nicer person to be around. They're more bubbly. They're more confident. They're, they're getting involved with stuff more. It's, it's amazing because one of the things we find when people have this self-imposter syndrome and where they lack confidence is they withdraw into themselves and that doesn't just impact their work; it impacts their family life, their social life as well. And that's one of the biggest positives of being in such a great community. you see all of these people who have not just lit themselves up, but they're lighting up their communities and their families as well. It's a li-
3: living almost. You, you mentioned uh, James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. That my takeaway from that, and partly what I'm hearing you say, is it comes to to willpower in a way to-, to to will yourself, whether it is your just your job or whether it is your relationships or whatever it is. That once you experience that challenging yourself and getting beyond where your limitations were worked for you, then you apply that in other aspects of your life. And, and it's, it, and that's so important, right? It's, it's one thing to be engaged for 10 to 12 weeks in a program and grow. But how do you grow for the next 12? How do you grow for the next 52 weeks beyond that? Mm-hmm. That takes willpower. It, it, your motivation is going to last for 10 weeks. You got to find other ways to build routine and habits to make sure you're going to do, you're going to walk the talk and exactly. uh right and that's really the secret it's it's maintaining that when even when you don't feel like it right you commit to something you, when even when you don't want to because you're always glad you did you never regret taking uh you, you know continuing to, to take yourself out of your comfort zone and
2: what a nice yeah. message to end on thank you so much for joining us dan it's been a pleasure to speak with you today
0: Yeah, Yeah, thank you so much, Dan. It's been super interesting. Um, You've you've given me so much to think about. and You've given our listeners so much to think about as well. And we have to learn and grow and we have to kind of discover about some of these dark practices that you mentioned (laughs) and really make sure that we identify what we can do to help our employees and our clients. And if someone's listening, Dan, and they want to get in touch with you, uh, or, or they want to understand about how your solution can help their employer or their organization, what's the best way to do that?
3: Yeah, the best way to reach me uh, would just be through my email, dan, D-A-N, at boltive.com, B-O-L-T-I-V-E. It's like active, but boltive. It's a combination of a lightning bolt uh, and a, a lock bolt, a fastener bolt. It's kind of a double meaning there. But dan at boltive.com is the best way to reach me.
0: Right, right. Yeah, well, thank you both. Bye. It's been
3: a real pleasure. Yeah, I love your podcast, and it's great to to meet you two uh, face-to-face also.
0: Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, like and share so you're notified when a new episode is released.
0: Remember to join the Privacy Pros Academy Facebook group where we answer your questions.
1: Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're leaving with some great things that will add value on your journey as a world-class privacy pro.
0: Please leave us a four or five star review.
1: And if you'd like to appear on a future episode of our podcast.
0: Or have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear more about.
1: Please send an email to team at kcnt.co.uk.
0: Until next time, peace be with you.